On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Kendall Ann, and Kendall Ann was in a physically abusive relationship with a manipulative partner. It's a story of sexual coercion, isolation, family, gaslighting, and a very observant neurologist. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Kendall Ann. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, thank you for being here. So you were in a abusive relationship, scary abusive relationship. Yes. Yes. You've dealt with a lot. And you've even written a book. I have, yeah, about it. And who's ever listened to our past episode, our Q and A with Dr. Amelia Kelly that we did? Uh, they will know that Dr. Amelia Kelly had a co-author to her book, and that was you. So, Me! so, so <laughs> go uh, listen to Dr. Amelia Kelly's episode as well. And today we're gonna hear your story. And I really want to thank you for, for being here today and chatting with me before we started this whole entire thing. I got to meet the dogs. <laughs> and now, without further ado, Kendall Ann, the floor is now yours. Thank you very much. So I just want to start by saying that I think I'm a pretty just typical woman. Um, and my domestic violence situation was, I think, very typical of what other women and men um, experience in these types of relationships. Um, I think one thing about me that is sort of um, puts, it, it surprises people that I'm such an extrovert and a confident person. So as my best friend says, if there were a hundred people in the room, you would never think that I would be the one that was the survivor of domestic violence. Um, because I am very confident and I am an extrovert. Um, but you know, this can happen to really anybody. And I think it's important to remember that it is not your fault. Um, because, our abusers teach us that it is our fault. So that's one thing that we have to unlearn. Um, the beginning of the relationship, I think that I was an easier target um, because, number one, I lived in a city where I knew basically no one. So I was already starting from this isolated place. Um, number two, Everyone in my family had started new lives except for me. So my older siblings were married. They had children. Uh, my parents were divorced and remarried. So everybody had found these great loves. And here's Kendall Ann <laughs> still alone. Um, so I was really hungry for a relationship. Um, 
Now, one thing that I, I will say is when I first started to talk to therapists about this and they would say to me like, oh, Kendall Land, what do you think made you vulnerable to being in a relationship like that? Like that, I used to get so defensive, like they were blaming me. Um, but really what I've learned over time is that what they were helping me to do was to not fall into one of those relationships again. Um, so if you are in therapy after you've been in one of these relationships and your therapist asks something about that, they're not accusing you of that it's your fault in any way. They're just trying to get you to maybe see patterns that could have made you more vulnerable. Um, so I had dated... I had gone on a lot of first dates, a whole lot of first dates, and I was just done with dating. I was so sick of the disappointment, everything. Um, and my mom just said, Kendall Ann, promise me you'll go on one date a month. And I was like, okay, fine. I didn't want to, but I did it begrudgingly. Um, so I was on a dating app, and okay, this one guy, this is going to be my one date for the month. Um, I put on basically like the outfit that I wore to every first date. <laughs> I didn't even really like take a lot of time to get ready. I didn't do normal makeup. I was just kind of like, okay, this is just to kind of please my mom. Um, and again, I was still hungry for a relationship, but I was so frustrated with dating. So I think that that also made me a little more vulnerable um, because um I think my standards might have been a little lower <laughs> than what they would be right now. So, so I have a question for you. Yeah. As far as how you were raised from mm -hmm. up until that point, you're out of the house at this point, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, would you say uh, you had just a fairly normal upbringing? Where was your self-worth, uh, your self-esteem? Uh, were you a perfectionist anyway? Are you an achiever? Who are you, Kendall Ann? <laughs> well, I am a people pleaser. So that's one thing that I've, I've been working on, and it's a journey to get away from the people pleasing. Um, I was raised by um, two parents who were very loving and wonderful. My mom is a feminist. Um, so she taught me, you know, like, women can do anything. I certainly wasn't like a fawn or anything like that. Um, I, yeah, I would just say that there was nothing in like my childhood that would really have me more open and vulnerable to this kind of relationship. Um, but I was in a new city and I was lonely and I did, I did want love. Um, and so I think looking for that connection and looking to be accepted by someone for all of me, you know, warts and all, that was something that I was really hungry for. What are your warts? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> so I think that I can be pretty bossy. <laughs> now, now I'm redoing that as um, I, it's leadership, not bossiness, right? <laughs> um, I, I have always had a, a elevated level of anxiety. Um, so I'm the type of person, like, it, I'll never be late. If I'm late, I'm probably dead um, <laughs> because I'm always on time. Um, I always get things done on time. Um, so that's my anxiety. It, it, it is one of the warts that I work on. Um, 
And not, let's see. Ooh, it's kind of hard to just, like, put it out there, all the things that are wrong with you, right? Um, <laughs> I think that um, sometimes I can be stubborn. <laughs> I can definitely be stubborn. Um, and, yeah, I, I think that those would be the ones that would be, like, the, the hardest in a relationship for someone to accept. And what are your beliefs about relationships? Yeah. Okay. So I believe that when you're in a relationship, your person should have your back above all others. Then that doesn't mean they agree with you about everything, Um, but that you're on the same team, that it's you and your partner versus the problem, not you versus your partner. Um, Because that's the way that my parents were growing up. If there was a problem, they worked really well together to figure out the solution um, and compromise. Um, so, so that's what I saw growing up. So that's what I wanted. Um, I didn't know until I was older that my parents were able to do that because they had known each other since they were 16. So they were really growing together and having all of these amazing, you know, life experiences together as young adults, first as teenagers then young adults, then adults. Um, so what I saw was, you know, a relationship of people who had been together for 20 years. Um, and my kind of romanticized vision of a relationship was that that happens right away. And that's not true. That's, that's not the nature of a relationship. Did you have like a, a Disney vacation view of relationships? Um, I don't think I ever wanted to be like rescued, right? <laughs> I didn't need, I didn't need that because I consider myself. Cause you were a leader. Yeah. Right. Like I, I'm going to be the one that rescues the man. And I think that that's the problem. That, okay. So that, okay. That, okay. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually Prince Charming. Um, so, but I, but I did have this idea, um, that, you know, like, if you're in a good relationship and you get married, then it's things are good. It's a, it's an accomplishment. And here I was watching my siblings get married, my parents get remarried, all of my friends get remar- get married, and it was still Kendall Ann by herself. So that that did again make me kind of vulnerable to um, someone who could sort of swoop in and then help me kind of uh, almost like achieve that goal. Um, so my first date with my abuser was wonderful. Um, and really our first, you know, couple months of courtship was really wonderful, but there were things that were happening that were playing in to my vulnerabilities and I didn't know it. Like, Someone that sits with you and just asks you questions about what are your hopes and dreams? What are your biggest fears? What, you know, what do you like about yourself? Those sort of things. I didn't understand that what my abuser was doing was gathering information from me that he was going to use later. Um, And then when I would ask him questions about him, he would say, oh, I would much rather talk about you. 
because you're so beautiful and smart and wonderful. And I just want to know everything about you. And you know what? That felt really good to me. It felt so nice to be seen. Um, One thing that my abuser would talk about was that he loved that I have a fun, vivacious, joyous, joyous energy, right? Um, Where sometimes before my life that had been categorized as what people say now is like extra, you know, <laughs> like that I'm just very happy and I and I want to have fun doing things. And if I'm in the grocery store and a song comes on that I like, I'm going to sing it. Okay. And if you're with me in the grocery store ever and Dream Lover by Mariah Carey, or I want to dance with somebody by Whitney Houston comes on, just walk away from me. All right. Cause there's going to be a show. <laughs> so that those things when he would say, like, I love that about you. I love that you're like that. That made me feel so accepted and wonderful because before in my life, people had made me feel like that was a negative thing, that this sort of energy that I had was embarrassing to them. So it was nice to not feel that way. Um, I remember a time when we went on vacation and I w- it was cold. Um, but we were at the beach and I was like, you know, I dare you to jump in the ocean. And he was like, no. And I was, and he was like, I'll dare, I dare you to do it. And I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'll do that. Um, and then, you know, like I jumped in the ocean he was waiting um, for me with this big towel and he wrapped me up and told me how much he loved me and how wonderful I was. And that that was one of the things that he loved about me is that I would do things like that. Um, and again, I didn't, truly understand that all he was doing was really parroting back the things that I had said I wanted from a partner. Um, And, you know, when you say before, like, what were your ideas about what a relationship is? um, Something that, that I've always held is that you should be honest with your partner. And I was very naive in thinking that men that I dated would also have that same idea of honesty. Like, I don't want to manipulate people. I would just rather you do something because you want to do it rather than I manipulate you into wanting to do it or doing it. So I had a naivete that other people would, would have that same idea as well. Um, so the, the first part of our relationship, it was, you know, in the book, we call it the fairy tale because that's the way it felt. I was being accepted. Um, I was being adored and it did move very fast, but because I felt so supported, I never felt like it was moving too fast. It felt like this was the natural progression of when you find the one, I'm, I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> um, that you like, I mean, everything we're told, like, when you know, you know, uh, all of that BS was kind of going through my head. And, and I wasn't thinking critically, like, hey, you know, Kendall Ann, maybe you don't move in with someone this quickly. Um, however, there was something inside of me that was just not 100% convinced. Um, even when I lived with my abuser in the beginning, I still had a lease on my old apartment. 
And I did not give up that lease when I could have. And now looking back, I'm like, oh, like that's because there was something inside of me that was saying like, "Mm," like maybe there's something here. Like maybe there was maybe some bells going off at that time that I just probably wasn't even ready to accept at that point. Um, so during this sort of fairy tale part of the relationship, I started to get glimpses into dishonesty, but it was dishonesty that was like always turned around so that somehow it was my fault that he was being dishonest, that he would lie about certain aspects of his life. Because if he told the truth, then I wouldn't accept him. And I think that that's where the grooming of the things that he would do later started. Of everything that he does that you would consider wrong was somehow a a consequence of the person that Kendall Ann was. Um, And that, that showed up a lot later as well. Can you give us an example of one? Um, yeah, so he, in his dating profile, had written that he had graduated college, um, and then come to find out he had not, which, like, I don't care. Go to college, don't go to college. It's not for everybody, you know, um, but then he put it on me, like, somehow he couldn't tell me that truth. Because then I would have judged him and not dated him. The problem was is that that lie was in his dating profile before he ever met me. Um, so how was that my fault? How, how was I the reason that he told he began a lie before he knew I existed? Uh, so things like that. Things um, like he would say that we were going somewhere um, and then... His parents would be there, and and I had never met them before. Um, So just little stuff like that where your body is like, there's there's something that's happening here that's making me feel uncomfortable. There's something here that's making me feel like this is trouble. But you're also going back to, this is the same person who loved that you would jump in the ocean, In, you know, December, this is the same person who loves that you sing in the grocery store. So you're kind of the whole time. I don't know, like, like, it's like two scales, you know, like, okay, what, which one is worth more right now that he tells these little lies or that he accepts me. Um, so, so that was where things kind of started in the beginning. And as far as the future that you wanted or you projected for yourself, the vision that you had, did that person mirror that back to you that that's exactly what they wanted as well? Or were they, or did they say these things out loud first, kind of knowing that that's where you might've wanted to go. And then you'd be like, yes, that's exactly what I want. Oh no. It was like, um, I would say the sort of things that I wanted. And then, and it wasn't right away. That's another thing that I think that I didn't really understand is that the calculation that is going on with my abuser, maybe not everybody feels this way, but my abuser wasn't 
he was, he wasn't dumb, right? Like he would know if I said something to not one minute later be like, that's exactly what I would want. Um, it would come like a week later and it would always be what I wanted plus just a little more, like just a little better. It was almost like aspirational, you know, like that not only could he and I have this great life that I had always envisioned, but it was going to be better than how I envisioned it. Um, and that, that, you know, that got me hooked. <laughs> if someone's going to give you everything that you want and what you didn't even know that you wanted, I mean, that's, that, that's the person that you should marry, right? If you don't know that it's coming from a place of that they're, going to control you. Um, but, th but there were other things that I didn't, that I, that I know my own people pleasing vulnerability. Um, and my, I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Um, I have a high sense of empathy. Um, cause I know what it's like to get my feelings hurt. So I used to love going to dance class. Um, I still do. You I, um, do these stupid little exercise, like dance exercises in my living room. And I like record them and send them to my mom. Like, look at me still dancing. Um, <laughs> so I used to always go to dance class. Every week I went to dance class. And suddenly me going to dance class was me neglecting him. And him feeling upset because he missed me during dance class. And so that was something that I started to give up and it made me very sad because I felt like I was sacrificing something I loved in order to not hurt my partner. And I didn't understand why he would be so wounded by me just like wanting to dance to Usher for a couple hours. <laughs> you know? um, but I gave it up anyway. And for me, once that once that ball started rolling, it was rolling in every single facet of my life. Um, and as our relationship progressed and there were certain milestones we hit, like when we got engaged, then suddenly me wanting to go home for holidays was me neglecting and rejecting him. Like there was no space for anyone else in my life except for him. Um, and again, you know, when, when we were talking about, he had gathered so much information on me, right? Like he had asked me all of these questions. So he knew that him saying that I was hurting him was a way to control me. A question I guess I have is about him, the, uh, the abuser, and his family. Oh, Jesus. What's their dynamic? And in hindsight, now looking at it, were there signs of looking at that dynamic, which would have, a, for someone who's going through it right now or might be going eventually through it, that you can kind of point out being like, these are the weird things that were going on. These were possible red flags that like, this is how it all worked. Um, so his family protected him in all ways, so much so that when 
I had a conversation with someone in his family after what happened to me, after I left. She said, we thought you cured him of this. So they knew that this had been a problem long before I came into the picture. And that was something that I struggled with, that people would put me in danger. Um, because I, it, in reality, I believe that they are fear, fearful of him as well. And that they didn't want to do anything to get the wrath and the rage that I dealt with. Um, there, was, there was nothing that was really, you know, um, like a, a strobe light, like, oh, they do this, that's weird. Um, they were highly involved in our relationship, which I thought was a little strange. But, you know, I just thought that's their fa- family dynamic. You know, now, honestly, if if I started to get that gut feeling like I had in that relationship, I, n- now I would be to his family like, hey, does he have any history of hurting people or, you know, controlling them or whatever? I absolutely would ask now. I did not know that that was a question I should have asked. Um, and, and I wish I would have known that. What did you know about him, the reality of him at this point, or what he wanted you to know? Was he a victim player or was he someone trying to show you, you know, he did lie about his achievement early on. Did, were you in, I guess, a spot where, because I have no idea about anything in your story. Uh, was he uh, someone where you're like, I want to, he wants this thing he wants to achieve. I'm going to help him get there. It was like he had been the victim of every single situation in his life ever. Um, that he, every bad thing that had ever happened to him was someone else's fault, someone else's negligence someone else's viciousness against him. Um, Which, again, kind of goes into this whole, if you're someone who sees a relationship as it's you and your partner against the world, then when this person is saying, hey, all of these, like the world is mean to me, but you're amazing to me, then it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like you, then you're going to keep doing it because that's, that's helping the person. That's what you want in a relationship. Everything is happening, coming true for you. You're, you're protecting this person, your partner against the vileness of the world. And I think deep down, what I thought that meant was that he would protect me. And I really didn't understand that he was the person that I needed the protection from. So basically, you know, it it went from just typical isolating and gaslighting that we see in these sort of relationships to then verbal abuse, which was, it started small, right? Like it's, he didn't just come out and start, you know, shouting the F word at me and calling me the B word. It was just little things about like, that was stupid, right? That's the way it started. And then it went to your stupid. And to me, that was very upsetting because that was one of the things that my mom always, you know, put in my head is that 
you can do stupid things, but don't call people stupid. <laughs> um, so that's how it started to go. And then there were, you know, comments about the way that I looked. He knew that I have some insecurity issues about, you know, my weight and my body. And so it went from like, are you sure that that's what you want to wear to that makes you look fat to you're fat. Um, and, and that it was so slow that you don't even know that you've gotten to Z because you still think you're at A because it, it just, the progression is just like, it's so slow that you don't recognize what's happening. And then before you know it, you're getting yelled at in public places and you're the one that has to, you know, like just do what you need to do to get out of this situation in this public place to make the screaming stop. And then you're also doing that at home. Okay. If I'm going to be yelled at about everything, then I need to be on high alert and I need to change my behavior so that I don't get yelled at because I'm not going to be told that was a stupid thing to do. Now I'm going to be told you're stupid and fat and spoiled and a bitch. You know, like it, it just moves that way so slowly until you're actually in it. And suddenly you don't know how to fold laundry. And this was something that he was so excellent at um, as far as isolating me from my mom, who is my best friend, is that he would do things that would pick at her and then turn it around that, why was I going to marry him if, if, I, if my mom was my best friend? Like he would say like, oh, your mom didn't teach you how to fold laundry correctly. And I'm like, Oh, you're not going to say anything about my mother. Like, <laughs> I'm definitely one of those people. Like, you're, I can say anything I want about anyone in my family, but if anybody dares to say anything, uh-uh, it's not good for them. Um, so the old, I can pick on anyone in my family, but no one else is allowed to pick on my family. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, because um, you earned the right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I just, I had to clean up a lot of uh, pots and pans when my older sister would make me a cheeseburger, okay? So I'm allowed to do whatever I want, but you can't say anything about my sister. Um, so that it was very calculated, and he did a great job of isolating me in that way of, oh, your mom didn't teach you how to do this. Um, and then I would be like, no, my mom did a great job of teaching me how to do the laundry. And then all of a sudden you, you go from that to fighting about how he feels like you're never going to love him as much as you love your mom. And again, he knew that that was the way to get me is to make him be the victim in it. I would, I was so confused. There, there, there came a time in that relationship where I felt sick all of the time because I just, the ground was never stable underneath me. Things were always changing. There was an earthquake every single day. 
And and sometimes the earthquake was, and this is going to sound crazy to, to people who haven't experienced this. Sometimes the earthquake was nothing happened that day. Nothing good happened or nothing bad happened that day. And so you have these days where it's just like, should I be afraid that this is going to get worse? Or should I be hopeful this is going to get better? And that kind of, you know, cognitive dissonance, it messes with you. It messes with your body. I mean, you you can't be going through all of this emotional turmoil and it not affect your body. Um, I'm, I've gotten migraine headaches for most, uh, since I was 18. Um, and I was getting migraine headaches all of the time. And so I went to my neurologist and my neurologist was like, okay, you got to write down everything you eat. You know, <laughs> every time you take a shower, every place you go, every this, every that. And um, I was just, he and I could not find the reason why all of a sudden I was getting migraine headaches all of the time. So one day he said to me, Kendall Ann, I want you to keep a stress journal. And I was like, well, a stress journal? Like, okay, what's a stress journal? And he would say, every night, I just want you to write down on a scale of one to 10, how stressed out do you feel in your life? And every night I would lay in bed and I was amazed by the times that I would write nine or 10. And I had a very, I had a job where I was, you know, it, I'm in sales, so it was a lot of pressure, right? You got to make that number, okay? You make your number on the 31st. Guess what? Next day, clock resets. Let's go. Time to ramp up that pressure. Um, and so, because my abuser was really good at deflecting blame, when I said to him, like, "Look, my neurologist is, you know, having me keep this journal, and it's 10 every day." He was saying, oh, that's because your job is so stressful. You should probably find another job. And when that is told to you all of the time, you start to blame it on these extra things that aren't your relationship. Um, so that finally, one day I was with my neurologist and I was just going through the stress journal and all the journals. And he was like, it's because you're stressed out. Like you're getting these migraine headaches because you have all of the stress hormones raging through you constantly. And your body is just trying to tell you to just relax. Like you have to get a break from all of this stress. And it, it, it never occurred to me that it was my abuser that was doing that to me. Because again, and this is one of the misconceptions about abuse that I always try to tell people that it's not all bad. Every day isn't your abuser screaming and yelling at you or hitting you or sexually assaulting you. Sometimes your abuser is absolutely lovely to you. Um, and that kind of, it like resets your clock. Another thing that was giving me the migraines is, like I was saying before, I felt like I was never on stable ground. And that was because my abuser was a gaslighter. Um, so one of the times that I was at my neurologist, I was telling him, I was like, look, 
I'm having this weird thing where I don't think I remember conversations accurately. And he was like, really, Kendall Ann? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, give me some examples. So I was giving him examples. And I think that my neurologist kind of had an idea of what was going on with me because he was like, it's weird because all of these examples that you're giving me when, where you feel like you don't remember things accurately, it is your fiance who is telling you you're not remembering accurately. No one else is telling you that. And that gave me pause. And I think that that was like a seed that was planted that I, I was not ready, absolutely not ready to, to unpack what that could mean for me because this was someone I loved. Why would he be lying, you know? Um, but now looking back, I absolutely understand. I mean, I was doing things like I would have a conversation that my abuser was involved in with other people, like members of his family, et cetera. And I was doing things like writing down what the person had said so that later on, if I spoke to my abuser about it, I knew what he, what, what that person had said, because I felt like I was, it was going through his like lens and coming out at me differently than the way I had interpreted it. And you were doing that without really reading about any of this kind of stuff. Uh, So that's pretty amazing that you were doing that because that's the right thing to do. You know what? It was – and I always – I say this and, again, my mom has always been a trust your gut person. Trust your gut. Your gut doesn't lie. But sometimes it just – like your gut isn't talking to you loud enough to kind of um, drown out the talking that you're receiving from other factors in your environment. So you're absolutely right. Like, and that's, that's one of the things I tell other people is like, write down, write, write down everything. Well, your, your gut's telling it to you the way it's telling it to you. It always mm-hmm. is. It's just mm-hmm. that all of the other stuff that's going on is so overwhelming mm-hmm. that, and it's overwhelming to such a point where mm-hmm. it becomes so loud and so frequent. And then even when it's not happening, that hypervigilance in you has taken over and you're waiting for your good day and then you're waiting for the bad day, but you're waiting and you're mm-hmm. on edge. And because that is inside your body and vibrating throughout your body, the other noise is completely getting drowned out it's still there except Mm -hmm. you're completely disconnected from everything your brain your heart your body's all gone and it's very hard for anyone at these points to find your way back to your gut and I always like to say to people after the fact because they're like they don't trust themselves anymore I'm like your gut was right your gut was always right because yeah, everyone said like they knew or like yeah, they should have trusted their gut. You were always right. It's just that these people are so good at creating a situation to throw you off, uh, to throw to, – to just overload you to the point where you, you can, no one can – like it's like you – you know, you hit that SOS gun or that flare gun and you're in the middle of the ocean – Except they put clouds over top so no one, including yourself, could see. It's there. Absolutely. 
that that's a great way to put it. That's totally right. And another thing about that is um, in that relationship, I was also um, being sexually abused and then it turned into more, you know, violence and physical abuse. And so when, and I, I hear many other um, survivors of sexual abuse say this, that you learn to disconnect to your body in order to make it less painful of what is happening to actually your physical being. And so a part of that is you do sort of disconnect from that gut instinct of when your body is is sending you signals because you have to ignore a lot of things that are happening in your body because it's just too painful. So I railroaded you there uh, onto, I forgot where we were. Um, so I think we were talking about how it was verbal and then we're kind of moving. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so then, like I was saying that then the sexual abuse started, um, and that was, that was very difficult for me to understand because, you know, I was raised as no means no, you know, if you tell someone no, then that should be respected. Um, but again, it got flipped on me because I didn't know that I should also watch out for people who, when you tell them no, make it seem like you are rejecting them in a way of not just that you don't want to have, you know, sexual contact with them, but you are rejecting the person as a whole. And so I didn't know how to deal with that because, again, I don't want to hurt his feelings. He's someone that I love. And when I'm saying, you know, I don't want to do that, then all of a sudden, somehow I am, you know, making a commentary on the whole of our relationship and the way that I feel about him wholly instead of just this particular moment. So, So that was a difficult thing for me to contend with. And when you say sexual abuse, did it start off as coercion? Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. So it started as coercion. Then we went to just downright bullying. Um, and, and, and I think that one of, one of the hardest things for me was that there, there could be no what I consider casual contact. And I've always been an affectionate person. I'm always the person like, I want to hold your hand, you know, like, like my friends, like, I want to hold them. I want to touch them. I want to, you know, squeeze them tight. Um, and so then I got into this place where I could not even have any kind of, I couldn't even hug him without him pawing at me. And it, it, it left such a hole in my life because I am such an affectionate person that then again, I turned it all off. So when I would see people that I knew and I would hug them as I normally would, I would feel my spine straighten and I would feel my whole body just like clench because now I was in the stage of every time I was being touched in any way, my brain was saying, get ready, girl, like get ready, protect yourself. And I couldn't turn it off, even 
for the people that love and adore me and would never do anything like that to ever hurt me. I just couldn't turn it off. Um, and, and that was that was a very upsetting and lonely time for me. And it was, things were starting to click then of, hey, wait a minute, how come every time the man I love walks into a room, I am fearful of what is going to happen to my body. And certainly I should have felt that way before about how am I going to feel emotionally when he's yelling at me and screaming at me and calling me names. But there was something about when it started happening to my body that my gut got a little louder to me and I started to, to listen a little bit more. Um, and then as far as physical abuse, my abuser, he was not the kind of person who would punch me. Um, it started with just controlling physically where I could be. So he would start an argument with me. And then when I would go to exit the room, he would always stand in the doorway. Um, when I would go to exit the room, he would kind of like body block me into the door jam. And that didn't register as physical abuse to me because what I had learned was physical abuse is when the person smacks you and punches you and kicks you. So him doing that, it didn't register of, uh-oh, Kendall Ann, like, this is bad. This is very bad. And, and you know, what was so wild was what, in, in one situation, he, he slammed me into that door jam very hard. And I left the house where I was living with him to just, like, get some air. And when I came back and I was like, we need to talk about, you know, you, you can't be doing that ever again. The way that it was um, addressed by him was, again, it was my fault that I shouldn't have tried to get through that doorway when he was standing in it. Almost as though I was the aggressor. I didn't knock anybody into a door, you know, but somehow, again, it was always being put back on me. So it went, and remember, by this time, we're having arguments that are loud, um, and there's shouting and name calling and everything. And so I was just, I wanted to get away. I needed to, to breathe. And every time I would try to get away from him again, it would be this kind of body block into the door jam. And one time he pushed me down and I was like, Oh shit. Like this is, this is really, really bad. Like this is, this is not good at all. And then it just went unaddressed, which happened so many times. These, these horrible things would happen. And then the next day he would act like nothing happened. And it really threw me off balance. So at this point of your relationship, how much time has passed? So at this point we had been dating for 14 months and engaged for two or three. Okay. And 
at this point, you know, the relationship is a year and a half mm-hmm. old. You are now experiencing abuse more often than when everything began. Mm-hmm. How are these, obviously you just said here that, you know, these things aren't being addressed. Are When things are done, is there any way he's smoothing things over or has all of the blaming on you kind of taken over as the smoothing over as far as you automatically thinking it's your fault and then trying to figure out where to go from there. Because if that is the case, then obviously at this 17, 16, 17, 18 month mark here, you are not the same person you were at all. You might be completely isolated from people. So are you talking to people here besides your uh, neurologist? What's kind of going on with you right here? Like, are you gone? So this was the thing that, you know, I, this is my one regret because I, my mom has always told me you make the best decision you can with the information you have at that time. Right. So my one regret is that I believed if I told anybody anything that this man was doing to me, that they would never accept him. And I still loved him. And so then I would have to make a choice between the people that I loved, my family, my friends, and this man that I loved. And I was just not ready to face that. So I kept it a secret. Um, thankfully, I, I had um, at that time a, a wonderful dog named Ozzy. Um, so I wasn't fully alone because I had this companion, you know, that, that this protector and, and this sort of soul that was always with me. Um, but it was, it was me, Ozzy, and my abuser. That knew what was happening. And did no, Ozzy I, like your abuser? No. No. Ozzy did not. And it was it was interesting because my abuser also had a dog. Um, and when um my abuser would like walk into a room where I just had been with the dogs, each of the dogs would stand in front of me. And I looking back now, like I'm like Oh shit, they knew, you know, like they were, they were protecting me, but I didn't get it at that time. I just thought, oh, someone new is walking in. So the dogs stand up. Um, but, and, and we'll, I'll, I'll tell you a detail later about how I, I, I definitely know Ozzy knew. Um, so it went from, you know, just this pushing to, um, one night we were in an argument and, He would not get out of my way and he put his hands on my neck and lifted me up and threw me down and was strangling me. Um, and I, I, I I was shell shocked. I had, I, it went from just pushing to now being strangled. Like to me, it, it was, it was terrifying but it was so confusing. And so I, I called the police. 
um, my abuser fled, the police came, and I did what, what now I know is very typical of, I was just like, blah, 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 like, this is everything that's going on to these two police officers that did not know me at all. They knew things that no one else in my life knew. But in that moment, I spit it all out. I was like, this is what's going on. I can recall, like, I remember this and I will never forget it. When they were taking pictures of my neck, um, with his handprints on my neck, the flash of that picture, like, I will never forget that. Um, and that's one of the things that, that I do work through, you know, of having PTSD, that there are certain things that I, that I really, really remember and that are painful memories and that I don't just remember them in my brain, but I remember them in my body. It's like, it, you know, it was stored here and that, that police camera sort of flash outside at night, you know, me sitting on a curb, them taking pictures of my neck. I will always remember that. Um, but I did what lots of survivors typically do, which is when they said, do you want to press charges? I said, no, because I felt like if I pressed charges on him, I would be ruining his life. He had just strangled me strangled me to the point of me passing out. And yet I am concerned about how this will affect him moving forward because I, I loved him and I, I didn't want any harm to come to him, even though he was bringing so much harm upon me. Um, so, so that, I, I wish I would have said, hell yeah, press all the charges on him. Like, let's go, throw the book at him kind of thing. But I, I just was not ready at that point. And I think partially because it was such a quick escalation of I'm going from getting pushed down to I'm being strangled. And so I was not really ready to internalize what that meant. What did that really mean for not only the future of the relationship, but the future of my sort of mortality? Um, whether this man was going to take that from me. That was not really clicking yet. I, I wasn't understanding the, the seriousness of the danger that I was in. Now I know um, someone strangles you, you get your shit and you go. They, you know, like there is, there is no other, it, it's only going to get worse. That is a, an extremely violent act. It is something that should be taken with the utmost seriousness. You cannot allow someone to do that to you because of all of the horrible things that could happen to you because of that. But I was not ready for that yet. I, I just, you know, like it was sometimes my fiance would yell at me and sometimes my fiance would bully me into having sex when I didn't want to. And sometimes he would grab me. Yeah, sometimes he would push me into doors, but... For it to escalate to that level that quickly, it, again, when, we, when I said before, that, that was an earthquake for me. And, and I was not prepared to deal with that at that time. Um, so then it was, again, something like that was blamed on me. And, you know, it was my fault and the whole thing. And 
then there was a time of it flipped back to the beginning of the relationship. It was, I believed that he had learned his lesson, that me calling the police had shown him, nope, I will not accept this type of behavior, and you need to start back to square one with me, and we need to rebuild, you know, this relationship from the ground up. And that means you need to be the person, I know this sounds so naive, be the person that I know you are, which was not really the person that he was. Um, so for, for, you know, some time we were planning our wedding. It was, things were good. It was, there were no problems. Everything was fine. I was still, you know, the perfect and energetic and he loved my joyful spirit, all of that stuff. We were back to that. Um, and, but I think that that strangling incident had really awakened something inside of me of I had a bit of an appreciation for how fast something like this could move. I didn't understand how um, dangerous it was, but I got it that these things can, can escalate far quicker than I had ever imagined that they could. So we just sort of went on with our lives. Um, and then, um, one time he, I was, I was getting ready to go to brunch and he again started with the sexual coercion and I was starting to feel more empowered. And I was like, Nope, I'm going to brunch. And he said, that's fine. I'll just cheat on you. And in my brain, that was like a hell no situation. I was done. That, to me, mm -mm, no way. And I know, like, for a lot of people, if you haven't experienced something like this, you'd be like, wait, he strangled you and you would still stay with him, but he would threaten to cheat on you. And that would be the the thing of when you would call your relationship off. And I get how that can be confusing, but there are just certain, it was like the buildup of everything that had happened. And that, that was the, that was something that I would never allow is cheating and betrayal. Um, so I went to brunch with my cousin and my cousin and I are three months apart. Um, we were raised basically as sisters and mostly almost like twins. My mom and my aunt used to give us uh, matching clothes to wear, which I loved. She hated it, <laughs> but I loved it when we, when we wore matching clothing. That made me so happy. Um, so she was, a, she, she was trusted for me. Like I, I knew I could tell her anything and she would not judge me because we had had decades, decades of experience of telling each other everything and it being all right. So we sat at brunch and I'm not kidding before they even put the menus down in front of us. I was like, I got to tell you something. And I told her everything. And because she's a very wise person, she said, don't go back to that house. Don't go back to that house. Kendall land. Please don't go back to that house. And as we talked about, stubborn. 
um, I said, you know what? I'm going to go back. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and I'm going to get a lease for an apartment and I'm going to move out and that's going to be the end of the relationship and that's just how it's going to be. And so she was like, all right, you know, be careful. And so the next day, I, oh, well, that night, he, you know, did a typical behavior of, like, making me my favorite thing to eat, um, which I did not eat. And I locked myself in the room with Ozzy, and I was, like, I mean, just, like, Googling apartments that I could rent the next day. So I went. I went to the leasing office. I um, got an apartment. Thank God. I was very lucky that they just happened to have one available. And when I came home, I saw his car in the driveway. And I thought, okay, all I need is my dog and my work stuff. If I get, I, I can get out of here with my dog and my work stuff. I can do it, right? Take me five minutes. He's going to scream and yell at me, whatever. Like I, I can tolerate that for five minutes to get my work stuff and my dog. Um, and when I went in, there was an argument and um, where we were in a room was where my desk was and my office chair was. And he picked up the office chair and slammed it on the desk. And it frightened me so badly that I walked backwards instead of forwards past him out of the room. And unfortunately, that put me at a disadvantage because I had to fight my way out of the room. And I am very, very, I'm, ex- I'm very lucky number one, to be alive, and number two, not to be, not to have been seriously hurt because he and I had to, we, I was just trying to get out of the house, and he was strangling me, suffocating me. At one point, I was, I was so close to getting out of that house. I was in the kitchen reaching for the back door, and he picked me up, again, by my neck, and actually, like, body slammed me onto the linoleum. And he was um, smashing my head down and su- and putting his hand over my mouth and my nose. Because I was screaming. Because I wanted someone to hear so that someone could call 911. This is a man who is, you know, 75 pounds more than me. This is, you know, we're, he's a different weight class. Um, and... The way that my head was being hit, I started to see, like, black circles, like, flying through my vision. I started to lose my peripheral vision, and um, I'm, I'm getting choked up, but <laughs> I just kept thinking that I was going to die and that my mom was never going to know what happened to me. And that was – I was so worried about that, that I knew I had to do something, but what could I do? What can I do? What can you do when a man who is twice your size is on top of you and it has pinned you down? Um, 
And so I did the only thing that I, I, I thought would help me, and I yelled for Ozzy. I just said, you know, Ozzy, please help me. Mommy needs you. And I will always remember this. I remember the sound of Ozzy's nails on the hardwood floor. Then I remember the sound of Ozzy's nails on the linoleum. And I was able to turn my head to the left. And I saw Ozzy. I have never seen a dog like this ever before. He was snarling and foaming at my abuser on top of me. It scared my abuser enough where my abuser could just jump off me for one second. I grabbed Ozzy by the scruff of his neck. I grabbed my purse and my laptop bag and this little stupid luggage wheelie bag I had, and I got out of the house. Um, and, you know, I, I, I truly believe that I owe my life to that dog because I, I think that he, I, I could have been killed if, if I hadn't had that one second where I could react and physically remove myself. Um, and I drove to the only place that I knew I would be safe, which was my mother's house hundreds of miles away. Um, I had, you know, blood on me. I was an absolute mess. I couldn't believe what had happened. Um, but all I knew was that I survived. And that to, that to me was, it was, when something like that happens to you, when you are, when there's a moment that you think, my life will never be the same after this one second, this one experience that is happening to me right now. My life will be marked by before this happened to me and after this happened to me. And people who experience violence, it changes you on your, in your cells. It, there's something about you that is just changed. And I, I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way either, because the way it changed me was that um, I, I, I was so lucky. I had, you know, a father who sat next to me in a restraining order hearing when I just, when, after I left my abuser stalked me. And so I got a restraining order. I had a dad who would sit next to me and hold my hand. And right before it was my time to talk, he squeezed me. And I knew my dad was there. You know, I had a mom's house that I could go to, to get my head on straight. I had a great job. So I had money to get away. I had insurance to go to trauma therapy. I had all of these things that just worked in my favor to be able to move on from something so horrible. And the way that that experience changed me was number one, I am amazed by the kindness that there is in the world because there were many people who did things for me that they did not have to do. Um, for instance, um, at my, my at that apartment that I had after I left him, I went in and I gave them my restraining order in the leasing office. And I was like, look, I don't know. 
I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this other than I just want to make you aware that I have a violent stalker and I might need some help sometime. And before I moved back home, I didn't know it, but the security guard at that apartment complex was always looking out for me. And when he would see me, he would just keep his eye on me while I walked to Ozzy to make sure no harm came to me. He didn't have to do that. He did not have to do that at all. I um, was able to, you know, reach out to my friends and they were so kind and loving and wonderful to me that none of them ever took it personally that I didn't tell them what was happening to me while it was happening. Um, and that, that's such an act of kindness in a friendship of to be like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's put this back together. Let's, let's figure this out. Yeah. My feelings were hurt that you never returned my phone calls for two years, but you know, I get it. I, I understand. Uh, I love you and, and we can, you know, move on from this. I had this support system that was so strong and I just kept being like, okay, what do I do with this, right? Like, how do I get this into the universe that there is a way for you to take something very horrible um, and help people who might not have had the same support as you've had? So that's why I decided to start a podcast where I interview mental health experts. That's why I've decided to write this book um, because I don't want any other Kendallans in the world um, to feel alone or to feel like there is no path after one of these relationships. There is a path. It's hard as shit, but you can do it. You can absolutely do it. And if I look, there, like I said in the beginning, I'm just a typical person. If I can do it, anybody can do it. So other survivors who are listening to this, just understand that there is life after this trauma for you. It might look a little different. It might feel a little different. But if you have made it through an abusive relationship, you can literally do anything because you have been tested in ways that most people will never be tested. And you survived. So you hold your head up and you do exactly what you want in your life because you have everything you need to do it. And when it comes to post-relationship abuse, did you have to deal with this person trying to get a hold of you again or to get you to drop charges or start to smear you in any way? What was the whole process in the aftermath in your relationship with that person and you know, yes, you're away. Yes, there is no, um, you're, you're disconnected in that way, but do you still love them? And if you did, how did you kind of go through that process? Yeah. So that, that was very hard for me was having to face the fact that I loved someone and was still in love with someone who would have done all of those horrible things to me. That was extremely hard because I was, I was very self-critical. I was, I, 
you know, I was constantly saying to myself, like, that I was stupid, that, you know, to love someone that would hurt me so badly, that that was, that was, again, because I had been groomed by him to think that, that that was my fault. Um, and so that was tough. And that took time. That And that's another thing is, like, don't put yourself on a clock. That was a mistake I made. I thought, you know, when physically I felt better, that emotionally I would. And that, and that's not true. Um, and there's still things that stick with me. Like, because he attacked, the, the first part of him attacking me was a loud noise happened. When I hear a loud, unexpected noise, my body reacts. And so I have found a lot of things that help me kind of get back into my body. Like, certain grounding techniques. One of them that I love is while I I stand there and and get back into my body, I think about all of the people who love me and why, and a good thing about them. Um, And it helps me just to get present and to be away from that fear. Um, And a lot of people who I'm close to, they know that that's, that that triggers me, that that loud noise might trigger me. And so they just, they just kind of stand there. And usually I just put my one finger up and I just say, just give me a minute. And then I can get past whatever, you know, feelings I'm having that, that PTSD, that's sort of raging. Um, so, so that's helpful. And again, that's something that that's going to look different for every single person. Possibly, you know, I've, I tried everything. I've tried like counting to 10, counting backwards from a thousand, <laughs> you know, looking at, okay, what's five things I see, four things I hear, three things I feel. That works sometimes too. Um, you just have to find the thing that feels right for you and your body. And how about anything about post-abuse? Abuse you had to endure after, uh, like, did you press charges or anything like that? Um, I did not press charges. Um, cause at that time where I was, they had antiquated laws, but, um, so because of the stalking and the, um, he would not, not contact me. I had to get the restraining order. Um, and that, that did. And I, I understand that people say it's just a piece of paper, but for me, it made me feel like I had another layer of protection. Um, another thing that was uh, hard, but I had to do was I changed my phone number. I blocked his, all of these new email addresses that he would make. I kept like blocking every email address. And finally I was like, you know what? I just got to get a new email address because I can't possibly block every single Gmail email address he makes. Um, so that kind and and that really showed me a lot too because while the these messages I was getting from him always were the same and I call it routine. At first it was like, I miss you so much, I love you so much, we can work past this, whatever, whatever, whatever. Then it would go to like answer me, you know, like we were supposed to get married, it would go anger. And then it would go to, um, for me, the hardest ones to ignore would be when he would say he was going to harm himself. 
And I, I really struggled with those messages that he would give me because I felt like, again, I was doing something to him. And so the greatest gift that I could give myself was to just not see any of that communication. And that's when I changed my number, changed everything. I had to block him on everything in the world. I mean, like he would do things that it's funny when, when I tell this particular incident, I can always tell people who have been abused or stalked and those who haven't. So after I left, he looked at my LinkedIn profile every single day. And people who have not had a stalking incident or an abusive relationship, they don't understand what that does to you of like, you just want to get away from that person. And that person is making themselves known to you every day that they are still somehow connected. They can still see what you're doing. They can still, you know, find you. And so when you're having to do things like block someone's LinkedIn profile, block every social media that you can find of them. And then moving forward, you have to be on guard, right? Like if you decide to have social media after that, you have to set it up so not everybody can message you because possibly one day that person is going to come back around and possibly insert themselves back into your life. The LinkedIn one is very tough because, you know, for your work, everyone these days seems to be on LinkedIn. So you kind of have to be, especially for you, if you're in like, you're in a sales, you know, you're always Mm -hmm. looking for different opportunities. So that one is tough. I know that on Instagram now, I think it's Instagram, uh, you can press a button that says, um, block this person, but block all other profiles that they create. So I guess they follow the IP addresses of certain things, um, mm-hmm. to, to know, even if they're creating a fake one, that it's still coming from a specific place. Um, it's really difficult to, to do, um, and to try and still live your life knowing that they're trying, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the background. And it's always lurking for, for someone who's been through something exactly like you or similar to you who has someone with stalking uh, tendencies. So when it comes to your healing process and, you know, we always say we don't want this to happen again mm-hmm. and building a better fence per se. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was the first thing that you said to yourself, I want to heal within myself that was nothing to do with the abuse per se, but was like, could get you into trouble possibly in the future. Yeah. So the first thing I did was understand that uh, I'm fully complete, just me as a human. Mm. I don't need uh Jerry Maguire, you complete me feeling <laughs> like I don't, I don't necessarily need a partner because again, I had this, I have this fabulous network of family and friends who support me and love me unconditionally. 
But what I also learned, so, so I have that if I need kind of outside attention, but the work that I really did was on feeling complete in myself and that, um, A lot of times, you know, people tell you, like, write affirmations and put them on a mirror, which works for some people. It didn't work for me. (laughs) It felt like it it was never really who I was. Like, I can't can't have someone tell me what to say to myself. So what I do now is when I feel good about myself for anything, I mean, the dumbest stuff. I pause and I just like sit in the self-esteem kind of burst that I'm getting. And the more that you that you do that, the more it it becomes really part of you and that you don't have to think about it. Like, okay, I did something good. Let me sit here and feel good about myself for a minute. You don't need to take that pause because you're just doing it. And you just see it kind of manifest itself in different ways. Like you're just a more confident person. Um, but but you you gotta you gotta find what it is in you that you really like. And which is difficult because for your relationship, someone tried to do the opposite to you. Someone tried to take everything that you love about yourself and just throw it in the trash. And now you get to figure out what what you really like. One thing that I like about myself is that it, sometimes unintentionally, but like I can make people laugh. And so that makes me happy is, you know, when I think something is funny to laugh and to have other people laugh with me. Um, my, my dad has always really imparted upon my siblings and I to celebrate every single victory, no matter how small. Um, and so that's one thing that I don't think I did enough previous to that relationship that now I make a point of. Um, and sometimes when I'm doing that, I feel a cr- something creep in of like, don't be too happy because something bad is going to happen. And so I've taught myself like some, some bad's going to happen, whether I enjoy this moment or not. Like the universe isn't watching me like, Oh, Oh, Kendall Land is having a celebratory moment. Let's ruin it. (laughs) Um, And so just finding these little pockets of joy and these little pockets of self-esteem and really relishing them has, has really helped in my recovery. And also just the idea that you went through something bad and you don't have to push it down, that you are allowed to be upset sometimes, even if it happened years ago, sometimes it's going to creep up in here and there is, you do not have to just push it down that you're allowed to experience the range of emotions that it causes in you. And if you had any words of wisdom or advice for everyone listening before we end off the show, what would it be? Trust your gut. Trust your gut. And if something feels off, get curious about it. One thing that I do now is meditate, which I never did before. Um, and meditation teaches you not to, not to judge thoughts 
thoughts and feelings that you have, but to be curious about them. And I wish I would have known that before, because when my gut was ringing those bells, I would have gotten curious about like, hey, Kendall, why do you feel this way right now? Like, what's going on with you? Um, and that, that could have prevented, you know, struggles that I, I faced down the line. But trust that gut. And, you know, if, if something doesn't feel right, you are absolutely allowed to call it out. And that does not mean that you are, you know, not polite or <laughs> that you might hurt somebody's feelings. If you feel like something is wrong, then you're allowed to feel that way and you should trust that feeling. Well, Kendall Ann, I really want to thank you for being here with us today and sharing your story, sharing a wealth of knowledge within everything you said. I mean, we hear a lot of stories on here, but you did it with a real sense of learning and not just learn from, but to feel less alone, putting words in other people's mouths. And I wish everyone, you know, we're not a video podcast, uh, but I wish everyone could see your face when you do your voices, when you get into the voice <laughs> mode, the best faces, <laughs> really the best faces. You know, what's really funny is that um, my mom, my whole life has been telling me, fix your face. Because it works when you're feeling positive about things, but also negative. <laughs> that some, sometimes you can read it in my face if I don't like something. Okay. Well, that's why, you know, in this day and age, when we wear the mask, if you, if you still wear a mask going out, <laughs> even if at all, you know, be, be a, you, if you're in a bad mood, be a mask wearer that day. You can get away with it. No one will know a thing. That's a great idea. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I guess one last thing before we leave. Um, I, you know, I was wondering, if you wanted to sing, <laughs> will, will we start getting sued here? Oh, you, you might, you're not going to get sued by Whitney Houston's estate, but just your listeners would sue you for malpractice for my singing. <laughs> I didn't realize that this intro was so long of people cheering. Oh, I don't even, I really don't even need that. <laughs> the clock strikes upon the hour and the sun begins to fade. <laughs> Still enough time. <laughs> so, uh, really, uh, Kendall Ann, you know, from the bottom of my heart and from everyone uh, listening today, thank you so much for, for being here and sharing this part of your life, which is, you know, uh, devastating. It is terrible, but you're taking it and uh, helping everyone with it. So, big thank you. And you know what? Thank you to you because you have supported survivors and you've helped more people than you will ever know. You've touched a lot of hearts and given people a lot of strength when they've needed it most. So thank you for what you do. Thank you. And before we end off our show here, if you want to be a guest on our show, just go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. 
click on that button and it will take you to our guest form page with all of our instructions. Please do read the instructions and send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form. And please do send in your stories. We're always looking for stories. We need as many stories as we can get. We record a lot. So please do send in your stories. And, you know, sending in your stories isn't just helping you, but it's helping other people in the community uh, to learn from what happened with you. So if you want to share your story, you're not just, you know, in a way helping yourself and, and coming to closure with a lot of things and understanding things when you, when you hear yourself speak, but you're helping the community as well. So please do send in your stories. And also at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we have our very own safe social network. And if you go to the top of the page, there's a button that says support group. You click on that button and it takes you to our network. And on there, we have our own forum boards. We have integrated Zoom meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night and every other Thursday afternoon for those people that can't do night meetings or you can't do uh, meetings be, uh, because you might be in Europe and, uh, you know, it's odd time. So now doing the afternoon meeting, it's usually a nighttime in Europe. So you'll be able to join instead of doing it at 3am or something along those lines. And if you just want to support the show, join our support group. That's, it helps us out a lot. Also, we have episodes that never made it to air. We have ad-free episodes. So if you're looking for ad-free episodes, you don't like that we have the ads at all, which is a necessary evil, join our support group and everything will be there. And if you need even more support, please do go to domesticshelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone because domesticshelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you are experiencing and they can connect you with local resources like shelters and they can find ways for you to heal and move forward. So please do go to domesticshelters.org to access this free resource. And that is it for today, everyone. So from myself and, and Kendall Ann, we hope you have a good night.